Well, it's a back to our bus tour. It's back to our bus tour. We are going through the land of Revelation. We are in chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Revelation is a kind of a parenthetic pause, uh, theologically it might be called. So I'm actually going to take about 10 minutes here and take our own little parenthetic pause and uh, spend some time with you on a couple things related to our walk through the book of Revelation and kind of have a parenthetic bus tour pause. Um, I think we would all agree that the book of Revelation is probably the most vivid book in the Bible. It is uh, definitely one of the most mind-jarring books of the Bible, and it's also one of the most controversial books of the Bible as well. And as a result... Uh, just as I'm in this now and have been in weeks and have just been throwing myself into all kinds of academics related to this book, I'm seeing some things more and more that are coming to the top, and especially as we approach the book and how people do that. And I think there can be three ways. Two of them are really good. One, I want to uh, make sure and just kind of put out there that uh, is not an invited bus guest. And uh, here would be the three that generally go. One is anticipation. I mean, cool, we get to study the book of Revelation. I told you when we started this series that generally the, the, the general person in a church is like, yeah, we're studying the book of Revelation, and the pastor is in massive fear and trembling of studying the book of Revelation. But there's great anticipation with that and excitement. It's like, what is God up to? What is God doing? And, and I'll tell you, if nothing else, the book of Revelation presses how you study the Bible and shows how you study the Bible. And there should be great anticipation. There should also be a sense of healthy apprehension of about it. Uh, I mean, man, as we approach this, this is God's word we're going to be talking about here. And, and, and this is also this aspect to where it's like, hey, we also realize there's a good amount of uh, sometimes confusion, controversy, and even bickering that goes on about what this book. So let's be careful with this, and, and apprehension can be a good thing. The, the third thing that sometimes comes along, it comes along generally quietly, uh, but I would call it an unwanted bus tour guest, is arrogance. Uh, anticipation, apprehension, and sometimes arrogance. And I'm really talking about kind of the mindset sometimes and even the tone that comes across when going through the book of Revelation. Like, here's a couple of them. Kind of, it almost can come across at times whether you're reading or hearing where it's like, uh, hey, I've got it figured out. I'm the one that's finally got it figured out and I want to teach all you saps what I know. And uh, we don't want that. that. That's not what's going on here. We don't want that kind of mindset. Another one that comes across kind of with a sense of arrogance is, I cannot reason that God could be doing that. So because I cannot reason that God could do that, it must not happen. So I'm going to either debunk it or I'm going to change the book to fit what I think God thinks. And that's arrogance to do the same as well. And a third is, it's kind of that uh, God and we win and everybody else, all those lost people lose. And it's just like there's no joy in the fact of that. It should be a motivating thing. My word, folks, people need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord is not thrilled that anyone should perish 
kind of a thing. So I just bring that up, not because we have a problem with it. I'm just noticing it more as I read and and I'm in this area. Let's bring the anticipation. Let's bring healthy apprehension. But uh, I pray that in me and I pray that in us, uh, we're not an arrogant church uh, with God's word, but we would handle it with humility. Two ways uh, that that arrogance can kind of show itself. And because the book of Revelation is so much about imagery, I want to use two images that, Lord willing, hopefully these will help see what I'm talking about. And the two images are these. Number one image is a painting by Pablo Picasso. And as you look at this painting, here's my question for you. What does it mean? What does it mean? What is this painting by Pablo Picasso saying? Now, here's what generally happens with a picture like this. We look at this and we see all these crazy images and imagery And we kind of walk away from it and go, there cannot be any meaning in any of this. It's just an assembly of images. So we kind of then move into this thing where we feel like I can make it say whatever I want. Because after all, it's just a crazy pile of imagery. Okay. If we had 10 of us here and 10 of us were all stood up and said, here's what I think it means, we would probably have 10 different ideas on what it means. Now with that, if Pablo Picasso were here and he were to hear the 10 different ideas on what his painting means, he would probably be going, that's interesting. Because that one, that one, that one, and that one, and that one had nothing to do with what I was thinking in the painting. And the fact of the matter is, uh, Picasso painted the painting. And Picasso painted every image on the painting in his mind for a reason and a purpose. If you really want to know what this painting means, you need to go and ask Pablo Picasso what the painting means, right? And what we end up doing at times is thinking revelation is like this, and revelation is this conglomeration of images that we can kind of take and we can make into all this whatever we want it to mean. But know this, the book of Revelation has a painter, It has an author. And if you really want to know, what we're trying to do is we really want to go in and find out, uh, Lord, what did you mean? Because it's not about what I think it means. And frankly, it's not about what you think it means. It's about what the author, Jesus Christ, thinks it means. And what we do is we think, what does it mean? We interpret with things like this, translating that and saying, what does it mean to me? Well, this is what I think. What's good for you is good for you. No, no, no. What did the painter mean? That's what we're trying to do with the book of Revelation here. What did he say? We want to stick with what we know. Second image along with this, colored eyeglasses. Now, these are kind of some funky eyeglasses, I would agree um, with that. But just as an image here, when you first put on a pair of glasses that have a color, like if they're yellow or blue, everything looks that color. But then after a little while, you don't even notice that they're tinted yellow or blue. You just get so used to it that you don't even think about that. You just go through and everything, even though it is looked through a colored lens, everything is seen that way. And I would suggest that such is the case with the book of Revelation. Now, what I mean by that is oftentimes uh, we have a theological framework and theological frameworks are good. They can be really good. But but at the same time, sometimes our theological frameworks force things. Okay, like for instance, 
If one theologically sees the the universal church as replacing Israel, as the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, I promise you, you will see, and especially in what we are in today in chapter 7, you will see images differently than the person who says, no, 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 the church today is not a replacement of spiritual Israel. The church today is is a different program for a period of time, and God still has a program for Israel, and you will see things differently. If you enter the book of Revelation absolutely convinced that you're a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or pan-trib, pan-trib means it'll just all pan out, whatever with that, I promise you, you will see the images from that perspective. If one sees Revelation through a preterist viewpoint, where basically all of Revelation is already done and over, it happened in history past in 70 AD, you will see everything differently in the book. If you see it through an idealist lens, to where everything is just about good and evil and everything is a symbolized thing, you will see everything through a different lens. If you look and you see everything that as though Revelation is describing the time from the first coming to the second coming and everything in between, you will see things from a different perspective. Here's what I'm asking of you because I would just want to let you know on the table, here's what I've been seeking to do myself. Take the lenses off and let's look at it afresh. I'm just asking you to do that. Not take off your God lens but I'm taking off some of the theological bents that you may have from your favorite pastor, your favorite commentary, even from your favorite church. And let's just dive in. Friends, I'm letting you know, I have been working really, really hard to do this, and it's hard. But I wanna know what the painter has to say. I don't want to paint over the painter's information. I want to see what the painter has to say. So what I'm saying is, let's let the book unfold itself. Let's allow the Lord to say what the Lord is intended to say. Not what you want him to say or not what I want him to say, okay? That's where I'm going with this. I want to know what the Lord has to say. And I want to approach it with a fresh lens. By the way, the painting, Pablo Picasso. It's called uh, Guernica. It was a... an 11 foot by 25 foot mural painting. He painted in 1937, it was shown at the Paris exhibition in 1937. What did it mean? Well, according to Picasso, this was his depiction of the Nazis bombing of the town of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War. He painted it in 37, Picasso died in 73, And the painting and some aspects of its meaning is still debated today. Isn't that interesting? There's aspects of this that fit with Revelation. By the way, one of the most debated items in the painting is the bull and the horse. What do they mean? What's the deal with them? Lord, I pray as we enter your word here and we having kind of taken a bit of a a parenthetic pause on these couple items here, God, I just pray that we would be a people that is all about knowing what you know and knowing what you say. God, I pray we would be wise students of your word, even willing at times just to take a step back from what we normally perceive and think and are willing to be shaped. God, I pray we would be students of your word without rose-colored glasses, without even seminary-painted glasses, 
without hearing revelation, without our favorite pastor, commentator painted glasses, but with lenses of the Spirit of God understanding the Word of God. I pray we would enter with great anticipation. I pray we would enter with fitting apprehension. God, I would pray that we would not enter with a biblical arrogance, but instead of that, we would enter with humble adoration. These are your words. What do you have to say? What do you have to reveal about yourself? We're here, Lord. Show us who you are. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Revelation 7, you there? All right. From our parenthetic pause as a bus tour here with two pictures to the parenthetic pause of Revelation 7, this is super cool. By the way, what chapter precedes chapter 7? Awesome. You're with me. Okay, in chapter 6, context. Six of the seven scroll seals are opened in chapter 6 by the lion-like lamb of chapter 5. You see what I just did? I'm carrying context. Chapter 4, John sees the Father on the throne and all the magnificence of heaven. Chapter 5, the Father has a scroll with seven seals laying on his hand. And the question is, who is worthy uh, to open the scroll? And then uh, we'll see here in just a second, there is one that is worthy to open the scroll. The lion-like lamb is worthy to open the scroll. He comes, and then we find in chapter 6, pop, he begins to opening the scroll scrolls one at a time, and I would say it this way. What ends up taking place in chapter six is the lamb opens the seals and the lion roars. The lamb opens the seals and the lion roars. Remember, the lion is the lamb. We get uh, in this, we see the seals are open. Seal number one, false peace. Seal number two, uh, I understand to be civil and world war. Symbol number three, famine. Symbol number four, death. A quarter of the earth. Is that symbolic? Is that actual? I haven't laid that out on the table yet. Seal number five, martyrdom. Seal number six, natural disasters. Chapter six ends with this very sobering tone. And it ends with an absolutely critical question. If you don't see the three-word question at the end of chapter 6, chapter 7 has no purpose other than data. Let me pick up verse 15, chapter 6. It says, then, uh, this is the open of the sixth seal, then the kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone... Slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb. Isn't that interesting? From the lion, wrath of the lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? That's the question six ends with. And obviously, this is a response to everything that's been said in chapter six of the six seals. I mean, it's like these six seals are open, and when you read through them all, you go, who can live during this? Who can stand during this period of time? It's like a perfect question. Chapter five. The lion 
is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. So if I'm understanding the question at the end of chapter 6 correctly, I think it could be said this way. Instead of who can stand, what's really being asked is, is there going to be any lamb-like redemptive work being done during the time that the lion roars? Does that make sense? Okay, remember the lion is the lamb, the lion lamb, if you're joining us, that's Jesus Christ. In fact, look over chapter 5, verse 5. Uh, here, uh, one of the 24 elders around the throne is saying that to John, he's like, uh, uh, hey, weep no more. Uh, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, uh, the, he says, listen, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. Don't weep anymore. And then look, verse 6, John says, and between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a what? I saw a lamb. By the way, it's not a lamb with woolly wool. Okay, These are descriptive terms telling what it is. The the, the, the ones around the throne say, uh, there is one, there's a lion that is able and worthy. A lion who can uh, come in and take the dynasty. And then he looks and he sees a lamb. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. How can a lion be a lamb and a lamb be a lion? He is. Guess what? We're going to find out here in a little bit that the lion that's a lamb is also a shepherd. How can a lamb be a shepherd? How can a shepherd be a lamb? How can a lion be a shepherd? How can a shepherd be a lion? That's our Lord. And too often we put him in these little cans of human reasoning. He can't be a lion and a lamb. Oh, he is. And know this. The question of chapter 6 ends. The lion has just roared judgment. And is there going to be any lamb-like redeeming work during the times of the lion's roar? And chapter 7 is simply this. Absolutely yes. During the time that the lion roars, the lamb will redeem in a great, great way. Let's take a look. Chapter 6, the lion roars. Chapter 7, the Lamb redeems. Chapter 6, multitudes will reject the Savior. Chapter 7, multitudes will come to the Savior. Take a look. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean it's chronological. Uh, Oftentimes it is, but not necessarily. After this, I saw how many angels? Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Uh, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Stop there. Let's talk about this. After this, not necessarily chronological, but four angels at four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth are are told, and we are told in verse 2, that they are given power to harm the earth in this. It's pretty clear that what's being the imagery here. By the way, there are literally are people who go to chapter 7, the beginning of this, and go, see, the Bible is so out of touch because the Bible thinks that we have a flat earth. Because they're on the four corners of the... Listen, there's a thing called figures of speech, okay? 
and we would even use this terminology today. We've gone to the four corners of the earth. It's not flat. Okay, it's an image. You can just see these four angels almost like on a sheet where it's like, you know, this going on. And, and they've been given the power to be able to bring harm to the earth uh, in all of this. Uh, is this relating to the first four seals and the four angels? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. I'm just going to tell you. I don't know. Just don't go there. Don't Picasso tempt it too much with it. Uh, but then the, the four angels are there, and, 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 and they're told to, uh, by this fifth, fifth angel, they are told, do not harm the earth. By the way, notice, it says that uh, this fifth angel is sending from the rising of the sun. That's the east. I'm not going to go into it. There's so much behind that. But the Israelites understood so much coming out of the east from the Lord. It's coming out of the east, and it says, uh, bringing a seal. It, it, what kind of seal is it? Oh, too many pages are spent talking about what kind of a seal. I don't know. God bringing a seal, okay? Not like an animal seal, some kind of a stamp seal. Is it going to be visible, invisible? It doesn't matter. Uh, a person can be sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's invisible, and yet here it could be a seal. But we know it's from the living God, not the dead God. It's from the living God. And this angel crows, cries out in a loud voice, do not harm the earth, do not harm the sea, do not harm the trees. It's such a cool imagery that's going on. I've got a question with this. When is this happening? Well, it could be after the sixth seal and before the seventh seal, because you can peek at chapter 8 and you can see the seventh seal is open. It could be happening in between. It could be happening uh, during the time of all of these prior seals. I'm, I'm inclined to think that's the case. Uh, but in, in all of this, uh, listen, here's the thing. The point is, is that they're being told to hold back. What does that tell us about our Lord? If this whole series is about Jesus Christ revealed, what does that alone tell us about the Lord? That he's just like uh, there, uh, and, and the lion is so excited about being able to go and pour out wrath and judgment, he can't do it quick enough? No. We see here our Savior, our Savior is one who is even holding back even more. Why is he holding back? Let's keep going. He's holding back. There's this divine lull before the storm. Why the lull? What's the lull for? Let's keep going. Verse 3. And he's saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And by the way, don't jump too far ahead into Revelation if you know something about stamps and foreheads and numbers. Just hold still. And I heard the number of the sealed. He didn't count them. He heard the number of the sealed. And how many are there? 144,000. Is, is that literal? Is that symbolic? Hmm. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Judah. Uh, 12 tribes, 12,000 from each. 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali. 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from... By the way, if you're brand new here today, you are like, what in the world is this church doing? <laughs> we are right in the series of it. Uh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Okay. I think there's three ideas, key terms coming out of uh, these first eight verses that are... Uh, necessary to bring to the forefront. And the first is sealed servants. What's going on here is, is judgment is being held back 
until the servants of God. By the way, the word servants, we as a church have talked about that before. It's the Greek word doulos. You can maybe see, maybe in your Bible it's marked, and down below you can see it says bond servant. And the English servant doesn't really hit it. Even bond servant doesn't really hit it. The reality is, is the word means slaves. It's really the reality. And so here it is where there's these uh, sealed uh, servants, these sealed doulos, uh, sealed. It carries the idea of ownership back in that day. It includes this idea of a pledge of protection of some kind of, of security with that ownership. By the way, it doesn't necessarily mean no suffering or no death. But, but there is a, some kind of sealing that's taking place here. And then servants, this doulos that are there. And, and then it says, until we have sealed the servants of our God. It's a divine sealing. This is God owns, God protects, God uh, uh, secures these ones. That's super cool. God is in on this. Sealed servants. And then secondly, I think a key term or idea in this is that there's this vocalized number. It's 144,000. Uh, 12,000 listed 12 times. And by the way, I just want to cut to the chase. I am fully aware, believe me, I am like hours and hours and hours of time this week, fully aware of the weirdness of the list of the tribes here. Okay, for those who know what I'm talking about, others, don't worry about it. Okay, I get the oddities that are in here, and sometimes those oddities are, are used to kind of take the text in some ways uh, where I don't think it should uh, really be taken uh, with this. Uh, I think we do have here uh, these numbers that are given, and the question is, is do we symbolize these or do we take them as they are, or do we do what the Jehovah's Witnesses do and take this as the center of our entire theological existence? And the last, no, we don't do that. Pastor, are these 144,000 what the Jehovah's Witnesses say? That these are the ones who are anointed in heaven in the Lord's presence. I just want to tell you that is absolutely horrible exegesis of this text. Horrible. By the way, the 144,000 in the whole context are talking about people on earth. The first section of this is an earth view. These are 144,000 people on earth. These are not 144,000 people before the throne of God. That's not what's happening here. Uh, These are, in fact, the whole text is the opposite of what they say. We're going to see here in a little bit that multitudes are before the throne of God, not a certain select number of ones. But there's this vocalized number. What do we do with that? Well, I'm going to keep going. Then another key term is sons of or tribes of Israel. I think we can see here that there is a clear feel, a clear tone. I might even say a clear spice of Jewishness here. And what do you do with that? So with all of this, Doug, who are these 144,000? I'm going to say this right now. I don't think it's that important in the flow of the text of the book to answer that question. I have some thoughts on it. But I don't want to put a dog out that I'm not fully dogmatic about. Listen, there's two ways to view this. I'll just let you know. One is that these numbers are symbolic and that the 144,000 is 12 times, 12 times 1,000 and these are all symbolic numbers and the first verse, verses 1 through 8 represent the exact same group of people talked about in the latter half of the chapter. I don't think that's the case but there are really good people who think that. 
Okay, then the other view is that the, these are a literal 144,000 during the time of the Great Tribulation that have, are truly out of each of the tribes of the Jews who God raises up to be used in dramatic ways as evangelists to be doing a redeeming work on the earth during this time. That's the way I'm bent toward, but I just want to say this. Friends, there is something much, much bigger here than that debate point, and it is this. Even if a person thinks that the 144,000 are Jews with 12,000 from each tribe, uniquely selected, uniquely protected, during a unique period of time, and uniquely empowered as proclaimers of the gospel, the big point coming out of that is that the Lamb is going to redeem people during the roars of the lion. And even if in this, the 144,000 is a symbolic representation of an entire Christian community, it's the new Israel, if you will, they would come out and say, the lamb is doing the redeeming work during the roars of the lion. And here's the point. When you flow through this, John is told to write down what he sees and to tell these to these seven local churches, and the seven local churches see a grand, great father, and then they see uh, the son take the scroll out of the lamb, the one who is out of the hand, the one who is the lamb, the one who is the lion, and then you see all of a sudden the six seals pop open, and judgment is pouring out on the earth and just devastating and crushing it. You ask the question, is God just roaring or is he doing a work there? And here's the answer. The Lord, the lion, is always the lamb. The roars of the lion are always accompanied by the redeeming work of the lamb. They are never separated. They're always together. Listen, friends, during the time of the great tribulation, there is going to be a redeeming work done unlike any time in history. And if you are a follower of Christ reading this in the very beginning and you're not sure when this is going to happen, you're like, can we stand in this? And the answer is, if you are in Christ, yes, the Lord is going to do a redeeming work. That may not mean that you make it through. That doesn't mean that we would not have consequences of what takes place during the judgment. Just like in the time of Egypt. In the time of Egypt, do you know the Israelites experienced some of the repercussions of the judgments on the people of Egypt? Well, so will followers of Christ during this time. But know this. The lion that is lamb, as we'll see here in a little bit, is also the shepherd. Let's keep going. Got to finish this through. Verse 9, if you don't think that the Lord's going to be doing a redeeming work during all this heaven unleashed on earth, verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude, that means like a lot of people, doesn't it? A great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Oh, by the way, so much for the Jehovah's Witness idea. Because these are all before the throne and all before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God 
By the way, do, do you see the tone? Do you see the subject? I'm sorry, the subject of their declaration? It's all about a saving work. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And why not say it again? Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these? That's a good question. Who is this great multitude? Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. That's kind of one of those things. I don't know, but I know you know. And he said to, the, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. I'm going to pause here just for a second because you need to know in the Greek that there is a definite article here. Definite article is the word the. This is not talking about a broad, uh, random time of trials. This is, I think, clearly talking about a period of time, a, a great tribulation, a, a, a pinnacle time in the end of God's redemptive plans. The great tribulation, these ones are coming out of that. Uh, by the way, could that mean that these are ones coming out of that who are coming to know about Christ through the 144,000? I'm not going to go into the weeds too much. I just want to stay on the, on the whole picture of it all. But a redeeming work is being done. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. By the way, when you do laundry, okay, I'm not an expert in the laundry thing. But from what I hear, blood is one of the hardest things to get out of clothing. And here we have this picture of blood fully penetrating all the clothing. And the blood is actually what makes it white. Listen, there is life in the blood of the lamb. And the life-giving blood and that whole concept of life and blood is creepy to us. But it's a beautiful thing to, the, to our God. And the blood of the Lamb redeems and they have been washed their robes, made them in white from the blood of the Lamb, the substitutionary atoning work of Christ. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Love this, by the way. That word for shelter them in his presence is this word tabernacle. He will, taberna he will tabernacle over his people. Is that not the coolest idea? My God is just going to tent over me. Tent over his own. Tent over these. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. By the way, for people like us, who most of us who may not have experienced hunger a whole lot or thirst a whole lot, man, when there's the, the, the knowing that there will never be hunger again, I will never thirst again, that's a glorious thing. Nor the sun, boy, all of this can be coming out of this time of the great tribulation. Verse 17, look at this. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne 
will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, I'm going to tell you, uh, being transparent, this is probably the hardest sermon I've put together in a long, long time because I literally have a day and a half of work that is not even brought to the table today. But I want to stay on this point. The Lord redeems. The Lord is always about redeeming. You cannot read chapter 7 and get lost in the details and lose sight of the fact that the Lord is a redeeming God. He is one who will bring people from all nations, all tribes, all languages. He's always been about a remnant of people. Now, I think this is during this time, uh, my angle on this and understanding is God is going to be uniquely using 144,000 of, of Jews uniquely uh, during this time, whether the raptures happened or not. And he is going to be doing a redeeming work across the planet. And people during this time of unleashing of wrath are going to be coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the heart of our Lord. Even in his pouring out of judgment, he would, do, he would pour out judgment that more would come to him. And I ask this question as I've been asking of me this week. Do I have that kind of passion for more to come to the Lord? Do you? If my God is so willing to even bring his righteous wrath and judgment and multiple outcomes of that, including the fact of people coming to know him as their savior during the last worst times of all things. Friends, we need to be a people that has a passion to be winning people to Christ. Because that's the passion of our savior. Do I? Do you? I mean, really. The book of Revelation is not a book that we enter in and we go, all those poor lost saps, they got what they deserved. The book of Revelation is who else could come to know the Savior, even in the worst of times of the righteous wrath of the lion being poured out. Our Savior desires redeeming people. Are you redeemed? And I don't mean do you think so. I mean do you know so? Do you know that you know that you know? If you were to die today and you were to stand before the throne where there's no games being able to be played, no self-righteousness being able to be played, do you know that you know that you know that you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb? And how do you know that? Has there been a time in your life where you've driven the stake in the ground and received Christ as your Savior? Because two things come out of the text. For the person who does not know Christ as their Savior, in love I say this, you're in big trouble. 
and you don't need to be in that trouble. The shepherd calls. And for those who are in Christ, friends, do you get the idea that the Lord is really, really serious about living and loving him? He redeems. The Lamb is doing a redeeming work. Now and during the coming times of the roars. The Lamb is the lion. The lion is the shepherd. If you are in Christ, he's the shepherd. He guides. He wipes away every tear. Do you know Christ? If you don't, It's time to come to that place where you receive Christ as your Savior and hear what I'm asking today. I'm asking today, if you've never received Christ as your Savior or if you are not sure, today is the day. I'm going to ask at the end of our service that our elders will be up here, our pastors will be up here and their wives. And when we're done, you just come on up and you just talk with one of them and you say, I need to know that I know that I know. For those who are in Christ, know this. There are people all around you, out in your work, in your homes, in your life, who do not know Christ. Do you care? In your schools. My Savior cares. Your Savior cares. We need to care. Be assured. The righteous wrath of the lion is coming. Be assured. The redemptive work of the lamb continues. Be assured. The shepherd guides and comforts. Lord, um, I'm going to leave it in the hands of you. Lord, I'm going to leave it in your hands to, to do a work among us here that only you could do. God, right now, I, I'm, I'm assuming that there are, are people here in this room today that they're, they're not sure where they're at in relationship with you. And Father, if that's the case, I would just pray that you would lovingly come alongside them and you would lovingly move them to come and receive you as their Savior. Lord, I would pray as you've been working in my heart and and I would pray you'd work in our church's heart that um, the beautiful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for us to hoard, but it's for us to pour out. Lord, we are assured that the righteous roar of the lion is coming, and yet we are assured that the redemptive work of the lamb continues. And we are assured that the the lion lamb, Jesus Christ, is also the great shepherd. We can in no way reason how all of those fit together, but that is our Savior. God, press us. Encourage us. 
to work. Our Savior is the lion that roars, the lamb that redeems, and the shepherd that guides and comforts. You are all that because you overcame. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.